0: DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, presents The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow with Mike Aquilina. Mike Aquilina is the author or editor of more than 40 books on Catholic history, doctrine, and devotion. Among his many books are The Mass of the Early Christians, The Fathers of the Church, The Mass, The Glory, The Mystery, and The Tradition, co authored with Cardinal Donald Worrell, and The Resilient Church. The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow, the book on which this series is based. He has co-hosted with Dr. Scott Hahn eight series that air on the Eternal Word television network. He has co-led pilgrimages to the Holy Land, Italy, Greece, and Turkey. He's a widely sought-after Catholic speaker. The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and The Hope for Tomorrow with Mike Aquilina. I'm your host, Chris McGregor.
1: Welcome back, Mike. Oh, it's great to be back, Chris. Thanks for having me and for hosting this delightful conversation on on the history of the church. I think in particular
0: this chapter, Chapter 9, the secular age, is a very important one for Catholics, but also all Christians. Well, I think all peoples to understand that time of transition of power for the papacy.
1: It really was, and it it was a a time of transition for power all through Europe because many of the traditional seats of authority... Were being overturned uh, in in these countries, the monarchies and and so on. There were a lot of forces that had been gathering against the church in the previous centuries that were all coming together at that time. There was the the still the after effects of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, there was this new revolutionary philosophy that was overturning governments. Uh, there was nationalism, which really was naturally opposed to any universalism. You know, as we find in the Catholic Church, Catholic means universal, mm-hmm. and so the nationalism saw these, the transnational uh, influence of the church as something, uh, something of a threat. And then there's the industrial regimentation that was happening at that time, which was alienating many people from the, the, the fruits of their labors. And, of course, this was giving rise to still newer revolutionary movements in the world. And all of these things were upsetting the long-standing order in Europe. And as you point out, the popes themselves had been secular rulers in Italy, and that itself was coming to an end in the mid-19th century.
0: Very turbulent time, the mid-19th century. It is comes towards the end of the French Revolution, a time when modernism is beginning to really take its hold not only on Europe but on the world.
1: And modernism was a movement within the church. Uh, there was a growing skepticism about any supernatural claims, Modernist tried to apply the methods of natural science to uh, the study of religion, and so they kind of bracketed off any claims to miracles, to the supernatural, to uh, revelations like the Trinity. All of these things were kind of bracketed off, and religion was reduced to what could be observed, and it was reduced, finally, to very little. One of the chief influences in the modernist movement said that the only line he could believe in the creed was, uh, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And that's what all of our Lord's life and work and his divinity and his humanity were were reduced to, just that one line that could be somewhat historically verified. So modernism was a corrosive thing that was going on within the church, and it was all part of this movement of uh, secularization that was sweeping Europe at the time. And of course, it was throwing Italy into a lot of turmoil and, and the papal states as well.
0: There were those intellectuals, you point out in the book, that were confidently predicting the end of the papacy itself.
1: Yes, because uh... they thought that if they removed the pope's temporal power then the papacy would just crumble would just wither away and die that without that temporal power the pope would have no influence at all so when italy kind of galvanized as a nation and the pope was confined to his quarters there something strange happened and unexpected the the pope did not lose his influence he did not lose his authority he may have lost his political power his his secular power but he didn't lose his influence he was beloved Pius the ninth was a beloved pope he was really the first universally popular pope the you know usually in far-flung lands they had kind of a dim notion of who the pope was and what he stood for but but that's all but but pope Pius was really living in the first age of of some mass media the printing press the newspapers and so on so that he could reach many people with his message he was a beloved man. He was beloved throughout the world. Catholics everywhere knew, knew him, prayed for him, and they knew he was praying for them, and they felt a connection with him. So even though his secular authority was diminished, he didn't have the papal states, he didn't have any worldly power, his spiritual authority was all the greater, and it became all the more apparent to the world because that's all he had, and it was still something mighty.
0: How did the loss of temporal power occur in the papacy?
1: Well, it's interesting. At the time, there was a great nationalist movement kind of swelling up in Italy, as in other places. And there was interest in gathering the various lands in the boot of Italy into one nation. And it had been many, many, many centuries since that was true. It had not been true since the time of the Roman Empire. So there was a movement toward making this happen. And, of course, the papal states would stand in the way since the pope really reigned over those lands, which included Rome, the traditional center of power in Italy well at the time the pope was leading the first vatican council in rome finally the the nationalist forces just took rome and abruptly ended the council it was never officially closed and the pope retired to his quarters and he did not leave we had a pope who was essentially a prisoner in his own home he was under house arrest as it were because it was self-imposed he was not going to go out he wasn't going to do business with these people he forbade participation for catholics in the italian government But he was going to hold on to his dignity, and he was going to hold on to his spiritual authority. And that was something he protected jealously, because he was given it in trust by God. He knew that. So he did that. And what's interesting is that without the temporal power that so often muddied papal authority, he was able to to gain a greater spiritual authority. That's what we saw happen there. Whenever you're in the business of politics, whenever you're in the business of international diplomacy, a lot of times you're going to get your hands dirty and you're going to get spattered with the things that are going on around you and you're going to be doing business with a lot of people who are in that business for the wrong reasons. And that happened in the Papal States. It certainly happened in the city of Rome. It happened with the Roman clergy. And there was a lot of resentment, as I mentioned. There was a lot of resentment against the clergy. There was a lot of resentment uh, over preferential treatment and so on. And so there was an anti-clerical sentiment that was pretty widespread even among people who would consider themselves Catholic in Italy. So you can see where this came from, but also you can see how the loss of the Papal States ended up being a good thing for the spiritual authority of the Popes in the long run.
0: I find it a fascinating period just in world history because when you're talking about the 1860s, not only do you have the American Civil War occurring, which was a horrible time in this nation's history, but when you look at what was happening in Italy at the time and also in France. God never leaves us. I mean there's this great movement of the Holy Spirit and I'm recalling what we spoke of in our last session when we we look at France and how the Holy Spirit was working so strongly in France through the simple when you look at the life of John Vianney and, and even Bernadette as she had the apparitions of our blessed lady. It doesn't surprise me then that the Holy Spirit is working in a very concrete way in the life of the church. In this moment where it's uh, essentially a, like a spiritual house cleaning, almost, wouldn't you say, Mike?
1: Sure. And what's interesting is that so many of the other revolutionary things that were going on throughout Europe affected the church as well. The same thing was happening in the lands we now know as Germany. There was a, a strong Prussian state, and Bismarck was leading kind of a galvanizing of, of the same lands in one unified Germany. And he had a real hostility toward all non-German influences within those lands. And among those, he numbered the Catholic Church. Because again, we're talking about, about an institution that's transnational. So it's it's going to be seen as opposed to the national. It's, it's universal, and its interests are universal. So Bismarck really, really had a hostility against uh, the Catholic Church, among other forces he considered non-German. And he tried to get them out of Germany or under his control. So he expelled a lot of the religious orders he took over the seminaries essentially and dictated a curriculum for the seminaries there was a lot of violence uh, against the monasteries uh, and they were they were sacked in some places but again God raises up the people we need and he raised up at that time as the successor to Pius the great Pope Leo the 13th who reigned for a long time and he was, a, he was really a master diplomat, and he knew how to deal with Bismarck and with the new Germany. And he was able to kind of stare him down and gather up a lot of support among Catholics in Germany who formed their own political party and created enough resistance and enough friction and trouble for Bismarck that finally he made peace with the Pope, and he, uh, he gave many concessions to the Church in his lands. So that was a triumph. Again, we, we see uh, God raising up the Pope we needed at that time, for many reasons, Leo Thirteenth was not only a master diplomat, he was also a master of, of understanding what we needed intellectually at that moment and spiritually because of some extraordinary gifts he was given by God.
0: We'll continue with The Resilient Church with Mike Aquilina in just a moment. Hi, this is Chris McGregor of Discerning Hearts, which is a 501c3 fully tax-deductible nonprofit organization dedicated to evangelization and spiritual formation through the use of new media. Discerning Hearts creates engaging multimedia specializing in podcasts and radio broadcasts, faithful to the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and its rich, authentic spiritual tradition. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission And if you feel us worthy, please consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. We charge nothing for any of the programs that are available on Discerning Hearts, and our outreach is literally to the world. Please tell a friend about Discerning Hearts, and either download our free apps, which are available at iTunes and Google Play stores, or visit discerninghearts.com. a teaching of St. Paul from his first letter to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, strive eagerly for the greatest spiritual gifts, but I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in human and angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clashing symbol. And if I have the gift of prophecy and comprehend all mysteries and all knowledge, If I have all faith so as to move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own and if I hand my body over so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love is not pompous. It is not inflated. It is not rude. It does not seek its own interests. It is not quick tempered. It does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If there are prophecies, they will be brought to nothing. If tongues, they will cease. If knowledge, it will be brought to nothing. For we know partially, and we prophesize partially. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I used to talk as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. At present, we see indistinctly, as in a mirror, but then face to face. At present, I know partially. Then I shall know fully, as I am fully known. So faith, hope, and love remain, these three. But the greatest of these is love. From the Liturgy of the Hours According to the Roman Rite From the Office of Readings
2: From the Imitation of Christ On Humility and Peace Do not care much who is with you and who is against you, but make it your greatest care that God is with you in everything you do. Have a good conscience and God will defend you securely. No one can hurt you if God wishes to help you. If you know how to suffer in silence, you will surely receive God's help. Since he knows best, is the time and the way to set you free. Resign yourself to him, for God helps you and frees you from all confusion. It is often good for us and helps us to remain humble if others know our weaknesses and confront us with them. When a man humbles himself for his faults, he more easily pleases others and mollifies those he has angered. God protects and frees a humble man. He loves and consoles a humble man. He favors a humble man. He showers him with graces. Then, after his suffering, God raises him up to glory. He reveals his secrets to a humble man and in his kindness invitingly draws that man to himself. When a humble man is brought to confusion, he experiences peace because he stands firm in God and not in this world. Do not think that you have made any progress unless you feel that you are the lowest of all men. Above all things, keep peace within yourself. Then you will be able to create peace among others. It is better to be peaceful than learned. The passionate man often thinks evil of a good man and easily believes the worst. A good and peaceful man turns all things to good. A man who lives at peace suspects no one, but a man who is tense and agitated by evil is troubled with all kinds of suspicions. He is never at peace with himself, nor does he permit others to be at peace. He often speaks when he should be silent and he fails to say what would be truly useful he is well aware of the obligations of others but neglects his own so be zealous first of all with yourself and then you will be more justified in expressing zeal for your neighbor you are good at excusing and justifying your own deeds and yet you will not listen to the excuses of others it would be more just to accuse yourself and excuse your neighbor If you wish others to put up with you, first put up with them.
0: God our Father of all gifts, we praise you, the source of all we have and are. Teach us to acknowledge always the many good things your infinite love has given us. Help us to love you with all our heart and all our strength. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. We now return to The Resilient Church with Mike at I... I am always struck that those great popes have that balance, that combination of the intellect, but also very much so the spiritual, and Leo was one of those who in deep prayer was actually given a vision at one point uh, that really galvanized his stances, don't you think, Mike?
1: He did. He had a vision of St. Michael, uh, the archangel, battling Satan, and Satan swore that he would defeat the church in the coming century. And Leo's vision of the next century was a century of terrible darkness and atrocities. And uh, that's when he introduced into the liturgy the prayer that was used for a century, the Saint Michael prayer, Saint Michael the Archangel defend us in battle, be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil, and so on. That was said at the end of every Mass because of Leo's decree. He had that vision, and it was a terrifying thing that he saw coming and he was going to fight the devil first of all by invoking that that supernatural help, by invoking that power of heaven, the archangel Michael but also by doing all of these other things, too. He didn't withdraw. He actively engaged in diplomacy, uh, as we saw with Bismarck, and, and he did that in other areas, too. But he also was a prolific writer. He, he put out many encyclicals, and he set the tone for biblical studies in the coming century. He also set the tone for philosophical and theological studies and really launched the revival of the study of St. Thomas Aquinas, which was to flourish in the 20th century.
0: It's very compelling for me to realize that in today's world we hear so much about a culture war and that somehow we're fighting it for the first time in our present day. But actually the roots of this culture war began in that mid-19th century.
1: That's right. And even the phrase culture war is something we get from Bismarck himself because he called his project a Kulturkampf. He called it a culture war against all non-German influences in his country. And he was going to fight them. He fought and he lost at least a uh, in his lifetime. But you're right, we're still fighting that same war today to different degrees and in different ways.
0: One of the most profound ways of winning that battle was set by the example of a young girl, a nun, who lived in France towards the end of that 19th century. And of course, I'm speaking of St. Therese.
1: That's true. And if we wanted to write up a job description for someone who would fight off secularism and communism and all of these other modern horrors, we would probably go for this intellectual giant who would have this ferocious warlike spirit and have all of these other skills, uh, all of which Therese lacked. (laughs) She was was a, a, a young girl, quiet. She lived in a monastery for much of her very brief life. She wasn't extraordinarily intelligent. She didn't have an especially sweet temperament and she wasn't even especially gifted in terms of uh, mystical gifts. You know, she's not like the saints we know who've had visions or voices or visitations. She just seemed so ordinary, and yet she proposed ordinariness as a little way to holiness. She called it a technology, like the elevators, these automated elevators that could suddenly take people up many floors in a building. Well, she said this is, this is a, a, a sort of technology in the spiritual life, just to be little to be like a little child and to walk the little way of ordinary things to holiness. She did revolutionize the way we look at religion in the 20th century, and she had a profound influence on all the spiritual movements that came after her.
0: It seems like such a paradox that this little woman from a Carmelite convent and this little way of just doing everything you do, every little action, do it for God, would have such a profound effect. I identify so much with Dorothy Day. For me, she's Mm -hmm. someone that I hold very close in prayer. And I know for her, and it was for me too, in the beginning, uh, very difficult to identify with Therese because it seems unbelievable. And it's almost saccharine in, in its tone in the beginning.
1: That's true. and when when Dorothy Day first converted to Catholicism, it was right after Therese burst on the scene, really, when her autobiography was first published. and uh, and, of course, there was a great push for her early canonization. And Dorothy Day was really turned off by the the holy cards and the uh, the statues of Therese. And as she put it, a young nun with a sweet insipid face holding a crucifix and a huge bouquet of roses. And Dorothy Day found Therese's story of a soul colorless, monotonous, and too small, in fact, for my notice, she said. Mm -hmm. But then she went back and read it, and she realized that it was that that smallness, that insignificance, that was the, the, the saint's most significant quality. And eventually, Dorothy Day went on to write a a study of Therese herself, a a book-length appreciation of her. And she said that um, she wrote the book to overcome the sense of futility in Catholics, men, women, and youths, married and single, who feel hopeless and useless, less than the dust, ineffectual, wasted, powerless. And again, we see this in an age when power is everything, secular power and armies and the state. Well, against all this... Therese said, no, 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 it's the individual soul and it's the little soul, the soul who dares to be little in the presence of uh, his father God.
0: I just find it uh, so wonderful that these strong women like Dorothy Day and then eventually even Catherine Doherty, the founder of the Madonna Houses, that they would see in Therese an example to follow. They did such big things, but yet they accomplished the big things because they followed Therese's movement in the little things
1: that's true and they didn't get caught up in making a mass movement it's something that happened they did gain a lot of momentum over the course of their, their lifetimes, but they weren't concentrating on that. What they were doing was concentrating on the person in need in front of them at the moment uh, in the soup kitchen. The, one of the beautiful things about Dorothy Day is she always placed the emphasis on local things. She didn't like federal programs because she found them impersonal, and she thought that when things got that large and impersonal, they often got evil. And so she liked to place the emphasis on the individual doing things willingly and caring one-on-one.
0: That's so important. Therese's message not only spoke to women, but also very strongly to men. I mean, that's how you could see it so spirit-filled, because it does appeal to both genders, and and in particular to a modern saint, José María Escobarra, of course the founder of Opus Dei.
1: Right, he's another example I mentioned, because he was also influenced by Therese. He was living in the same time when she was first becoming popular. And in those early years, when he founded Opus Dei, he used her book to form the first members of Opus Dei, and he himself used her as an example in his his own seminal work, The Way. I think it would be difficult to find a spiritual movement of the 20th century that did not feel her influence somehow. Uh, She really did break down a lot of the barriers that had come up in the Church's life, uh, clericalizing influences that had come up since the Middle Ages, and she really did proclaim the, the universal call to holiness very early on, long before the Second Vatican Council kind of enshrined it as its focus.
0: I love in this reflection on the resilient church, the glory, the shame, and the hope for tomorrow, these glimpses on the timeline, because it really does give us the bigger picture, Mike. And again, here we've just looked at how the Holy Spirit helped us to get back to basics, to the spiritual life. We saw it before in what happened with the movement of the Holy Spirit in the life of St. Francis in the 1200s. and just knowing that, you know, the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, that the Holy Spirit continues to guide us. And we are going to need that Holy Spirit even more in the next section that we talk to as the church and while well, the people of the world try to survive the 20th century.
1: Well, the constant lesson is expect the unexpected. No one could have predicted Francis of Assisi. No one could have could have predicted Thomas Aquinas or Teresa of Lisieux. All of these great Great people kind of came out of the blue they were actual graces in history and they weren't the people we would have chosen to fill the job description for what was needed by the church in that time but they were what God knew we needed and we can thank God for those actual graces those people who, who came into the church and and into our lives and we can look forward to with hope because we know that he's still with us and he's raising up such people even today and they're not the people we would expect. So we have to keep our eyes open and we have to cultivate the presence of God and and the action of the Holy Spirit so that we'll have that discernment to know when these prophets are rising up among us.
0: Very well said, Mike. You've been listening to The Resilient Church. The Glory, the Shame, and the Hope for Tomorrow, with Mike Aquilina. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts, in cooperation with the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission, And if you feel it's worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we ask that you tell a friend about discerninghearts.com. And join us next time for The Resilient Church, The Glory, The Shame, and the Hope for Tomorrow with Mike Aquilina.